This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is July 30th, 2023. I'm Scott Bone, and joining me are the boys in short pants, Etienne and uh, Laurent. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having us, Scott. Delighted. Yeah. Uh, so for those who don't know, you guys are the host of the, uh, I guess at this point, pretty long running uh, podcast, the boys in short pants. Uh, bit of a break it's on, but uh, I'm glad you could join me uh, today nonetheless. We're sort of the once and future hosts, if you will. <laughs> I mean, essentially... Kind of the, the King Arthurs of podcasting if, in the Canadian political space. The, po- the the blue yeti in the stone uh, can only be re- reclaimed by one of us. Yeah, it's going on five years, although I think it's been four months since the last episode. Uh, much to the chagrin of some folks I've ran into around Ottawa lately. Um, and yes. I think the last episode we were promising to do them more frequently and then promptly did our longest pause, um, ever. So yeah. the, yeah, you, you know, I always say you get what you pay for. So here we are. Yeah. And we did. T- and the worst part is we did two back to back, right? So you got expectations. That. So yes. up and- yeah. People were like, damn, these guys are cooking. And then it was like, turns out we were cooking something that takes a really long time to cook. So, you know, that's, that's what she goes. Yeah. No, life gets in the way. I get that. It's something, uh, Ian and I find ourselves dealing with more and more these days, but, uh, that's living, yeah. baby. Um, as they say, <laughs> for sure. Well, it makes me feel not so bad about just running a couple days late with this episode. I'm, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure the audience will forgive you. Yeah. Well, I uh, mainly brought you guys on, uh, both because Ian wasn't here, uh, but also to kind of get your guys' insights and kind of what's been going on in Ottawa with uh, kind of basically, I guess, a couple of the big stories that have happened since, uh, well, February. Because, yeah, Just you guys missed the whole uh, foreign interference thing and not really talking too much about that. And we'll dive into that a bit uh, at the end. Uh, but first, I wanted to... Talked about kind of big news this week, which was the uh, cabinet shuffle on that. Um, so being teased for a while, uh, sounded like it was going to be a much smaller deal than it ended up being. Uh, turned out pretty significant shuffle. We won't go through every single cabinet minister that uh, changed hands, both because at this point it's been a few days. Everyone who will really care will have probably read the list already. And also, we would be here all day. Uh, so instead, I guess I'll just ask you guys, kind of, what's your top-level takeaway from uh, the cabinet shuffle? I, so let, it's yeah, let me ahead. start with yeah. two observations. Observation one is uh, perhaps this puts to bed the speculation slash Ottawa gossip around Christia Freeland uh, changing jobs to be at NATO and International Bank, whatever rumor you've subscribed to. Uh, seems at this point to be put to bed. One of the premises of this shuffle was that the folks that are on have committed to running again. Um, so you saw a handful of cabinet ministers basically put in their res- uh, resignations for the next election, not re-offering as a candidate. Some were already quite established into that process. There seemed to be a little bit of a push uh, for some of them. There were some 
Uh, Not entirely voluntary resignations is what you some, hinted at. Some were certainly more suspicious than others on that front. Um, but vis-a-vis Freeland, Ottawa has really been a buzz in the last, I'd say, two to three months with speculation of Freeland um, calling it quits, packing up, going to some better international gig or at least a different international gig. Um, but this, I think, firmly cements her in place um, until the election at the very least. Um, and then the other one I think that is really notable from the list is poor our, our, our poor friend Marco Mendicino, um, which is both good and bad. I mean, it's bad for Marco, but good for accountability in Ottawa. I can't. Is that still a thing? I, I guess so. Like the the logic of government for so long, uh, both in Ottawa and elsewhere, has been deny, deny, deny. Uh, move on, pretend it never happened, never resign for any circumstances. And this is kind of the first like glimmer of accountability we've seen for a minister who has really mangled things. I think in this government, I, I'm struggling to think of another like resignation or substantive dismissal uh, that we've seen from Trudeau in any of the cabinet shuffles, barring the Marianne Mahaychuk. Yeah, but no one really knew why that was the case. <laughs> yeah, and from all, from what everyone is kind of, or what I've sort of intuited, it was more just that she, she, her colleagues did not like working with her. Uh, but yeah, at any rate, that is the to this date, I think pretty much the only one. Uh, I guess Mark Garneau kind of yeah. was like a bit of like a huh, that was weird, but like you know, you could sort of think. I of think it he some was just Bill was kind of the other. Major departure that uh, kind of looms large. But Bill Morneau was a resignation, right? So there there have been like graceful resignations to run for um, prestigious international jobs, which is what the the Morneau one kind of falls into. But like the straight boot in response to a um, like ongoing political crisis in the House around particularly Bernardo, a little bit the, the foreign interference kind of strange to see and it makes you wonder if this cabinet shuffle were instead three or four months from now would marco have written it out and would he be safe and sound on the front bench uh to this day yes i i think my read on that is yes probably i i but you know i I tend to go there i i kick it over to laurent for for his observations yeah i mean i think there's a couple of interesting changes. I think you, you highlighted Marco as the sort of like bye-bye honey of, of the shuffle. I think the other somewhat mysterious bye-bye honey of the shuffle was David Lametti. Uh, and no one to me seems pretty like reasonably sure what that was about. Uh, I can only imagine that the uh, the cultural industries lobby have, uh, <laughs> have felled this staunch ally of an expansive reading of user rights in the realm of copyright. Uh, but there's probably other reasons too. Uh, I have heard like the sort of official unofficial explanation of they needed to make room for another Montreal minister to me was like that doesn't this this government has obviously been shy about having a big cabinet I don't find that remotely credible Um, especially since he's been there like for a while I, I would find an explanation based on the tensions and caucus around the official languages bill to be more convincing but I don't have enough kremlin insight to to really know if that's actually the case but that would be more where my gut read is and that was certainly an odd one because he's you know uh, he's certainly a performer who i would say the conservatives don't like his his justice policies but from as far as i can tell like 
he's very much where the liberal government wants to be on these things. So I don't know. That, that was a bit of an odd one. Uh, Mona Forte uh, leaving was also like, so a bit of a mystifying one from the beginning. So if, if you know, if you cast your mind back to the, the rosy days of 2019, she was appointed as minister uh, responsible for middle class prosperity as a sort of associate minister of finance. People, the conservatives had their fun with the name of that portfolio, which is very funny. Uh, and, you know, fair enough. Um, and she had come in on a by-election during the last parliament, uh, Ottawa Vanier, one of the safest liberal seats in the country, if not the safest liberal seat in the country. Um, so, you know, and I don't think she had come in being like, I'm this like high flyer from, you know, the corporate or academic or, you know, organizational worlds. It was kind of just like, oh, okay, cool. There's, there's this person here. So she came into that role. Uh, and by all accounts, or by at least most accounts I've heard, like was a good stakeholder relations person, um, at least was like people felt listened to talking to her. I'm responding a little bit to Etienne's facial expressions, <laughs> which you can't see uh, for, the, for the benefit of the listener here. Uh, but at any rate, like I heard, you know, reasonably positive things about from stakeholders, like, you know, felt listened to, which if you're the associate minister of finance, that's kind of your job. So, you know, fair enough. And then she got moved into Treasury Board, uh, which for, you know, people in Ottawa kind of understand the the sort of scope and scale of this department. But Treasury Board Secretariat is basically the, the corporate affairs department for the whole government. Like it's responsible for a lot of the oversight of, of you know, government wide policies and procedures, uh, as well as overseeing spending. Uh, once uh, proposals make it to cabinet, they sort of are approved in principle, then go before the actual Treasury Board, which is a committee of cabinet that scrutinizes spending and are supported by the Secretariat. I'll cap the explanation there. At any rate, a very operationally sensitive department. Uh, and to some extent, if you're the liberal secretary of treasury board, the spending part of it is less important, you know, just because I historically there has been a little bit less of concern about spending on, on from those governments. Uh, not to single them out because the conservatives have also been, uh, you know, pretty prolific in their own times and places. But uh, your job really is... The job, the, the minister of not letting PSAC go on strike, uh, and they did that. So I suspect that has a lot to do with it, which kind of leads me to the second thing, which is making an Ottawa area MP, this president of treasury board, is kind of a distinctly bad idea because you are very vulnerable to that constituency, which, no surprise, right, like your voter, <laughs> is very concentrated. Your voters yes, exactly. are the people you're negotiating against in that case. Exactly. So it's a little harder to sort of have that distance that you probably need. So at any rate, uh, I, I would say not a mystifying exit. I think people, especially in the public service, were, were very unhappy. And when I say public service, I mean rank and file, were very unhappy with her performance. As any cursory glance at uh, the the esteemed uh, Canada Public Servant let subreddit me, will tell let you. Let me push back on this uh, for just a second. Because, I mean, you point someone president of the Treasury Board, and I'm sure Mona herself, if given a, a mandate to negotiate more broadly by cabinet, would have been happy to give them the full raise that they were looking for. Like, there's a certain amount of it that I think is not on her. Like, cabinet would have come and given her, like, her negotiation mandate, kind of the window of what she was authorized to spend. Like, I don't think that's on her at all. Not, I mean, it's kind of shocking that I find myself defending Mona Fortier. Um, and I think she was a bit of an up-and-comer. Like, one of the other roles that I think you missed from your, your highlight reel there was uh, National Platform Committee, Once Upon a Time with Ralph Goodale. Oh, yeah. Uh, which yeah, is like a true. pretty notable role that she yeah. was put in charge. I mean, if Ralph Goodale is the other party on there, it's, it gives you a good yeah, sense. Yeah, so I think it is somewhat more mystifying because you can't, like, if if her role as Treasury Board Minister was to, 
uh, give PSAC everything they wanted, uh, then I think she easily could have accomplished that. I don't think it was her her nastiness no, that yeah, had her I, holding out in those negotiations and that led to the strike. That's not what real. That's not really what I'm arguing. I think that she was she communicated to the union and to the rank and file really, really poorly and didn't get anyone on her side and let PSAC kind of run the table on them, like in terms of actually crystallizing a lot of support around the, the union's position. Like, I think it's it's really that more than like she wasn't authorized to give her give them what they wanted, which like, of course, she wasn't like, <laughs> uh, like, that would be foolish. But yeah, like. No, I, I, that, not exactly what I was arguing. So I, I, I agree with what you've said, but it was, yes, orthogonal to the point I was making. So there you go. Uh, in terms of other folks, Anita and Nand uh, moving again is like, well, I, I hope that works out um, to uh, to procurement. That's certainly a department that needs. She some help. was procurement. Uh, sorry, uh, like two oh, minutes sorry, ago. Yes. So no, no, no. Uh, procurement minister. Became MND. Minister of National Defense and now is and now right, she's right, Treasury right. Board uh, right. president. Yes, so yes. president of the Treasury right. Board. The way they were positioning this was like bolstering their economic team, uh, putting her in an economic portfolio. A lot of people kind of raised their eyebrows at that characterization of things. There's two ways to read this: the generous way and the ungenerous way. The generous way is this is a government that has struggled with implementation and delivery, ironically, for a government that um, subscribed to deliverology mm. so early on. Um, and now they're in like all the money is allocated, basically, and now they need to spend it and they need to spend it wisely. And so having a high performer in Treasury Board where they've tended to not have a ton of high performers um, in, in kind of recent history um, is... They had Jane Philpott for five minutes, Yeah, is, is one way to read it. <laughs> yeah. um, and then the other way to read it is there were stories about Anita and Nand, like uh, organizing a leadership uh, campaign a little too visibly. And so kind of knocking her down a peg in terms of visibility from Minister yes. of National Defense being out there on a lot of, you know, press conferences and stuff like that to more of a background position where her... Yes, and then also they're going to be moving the Treasury Board Secretariat to Winnipeg to, uh, to counteract the forces. <laughs> no, just kidding. They're not doing that for anyone. Where her competence yeah, can shine, albeit think, quietly. Yeah, well, they, uh, I think that's a good read. The other one that I think is is worth mentioning is the shuffle out of uh, Ahmed Hussein as housing housing minister and uh, sort of uh, bumping uh, Sean Fraser into that. Um, I think they've belatedly are realizing that the the policy the, saying we have a national housing strategy like a lot is not really addressing people's angst over this issue uh and nor does a why can't we all get along uh, op-ed yes yes so i think they have i think they are they're feeling the heat on that one and feel they need someone who it, they can trust a bit more to communicate without like upsetting uh, a lot of people uh into that job uh so we will see uh i think I would say those are the ones that kind of stuck out to me. I can't really think of of a lot of others. If there's one thing, it's uh, like I think Champagne staying where he is is a sign of like full steam ahead on on the Minister of Deals making deals. Um, but beyond that, I think that's that's my my takeaways. Yeah. So those were a lot of kind of the ones I picked out as well. Uh, the other explanation I've seen float around for Anita Anand is that. Uh, the defense review was coming in way higher than the liberals wanted to spend. There was an Ottawa Citizen story on that a day or two ago. 
uh, and that uh, that plus publicly downplaying the uh, the option of deploying troops to Haiti that the U.S. has been pushing for, like those kind of things, may have contributed to it as well. Um, I'm not sure how much to read into it, one way or the other. Those sound. Uh, yeah. The, the def- oh, I was going to say ahead, those yeah. sound insufficiently political to me. Those sound like <laughs> departmental inside baseball kind of things, as opposed yeah. to like you know what pe- what we love to chat about the the gossip, the personalities, the the broader political dynamics that play within a caucus. Yeah. I mean, if you want to spend less, you can always just spend less. You know, like it's. Uh, I don't know. I find these things are. Uh, unless, yeah, I don't know. I per, perhaps there is a grain of truth to that. I do not know. Defense is not really. My I guess anyway. Bill Blair going over there is uh, also no. That was the yeah. That was the other thing that I kind of picked up on was seems a interesting choice to put him in defense because I don't think he's necessarily had an entirely smooth run when it comes to uh, national security related stuff, as we'll get into in a bit. Yeah, yes. and. It seemed like he was being pulled back is at least how I read his last um, move is a little bit of a demotion to president of the uh, Privy Council and emergency preparedness, which is basically just overseeing flood money. Um, And so bouncing up now into MND during, you know, live conflicts in Europe seems like a big step up for him. Um. So a little inexplicable in that regard, but I guess they were wanting for credible people to put in there. And Bill Blair at least visually looks like a credible person from kind of heteronormative expectations of what what a minister of national defense should look like. Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, so at least you have some pretty big shoes to fill on that one because uh, Anita and I was fairly well respected in that role from a lot of both our allies and kind of here in Canada as well. And I don't think Bill Blair is quite as sterling a reputation no. across the board. Yeah, a lot of even conservatives were kind of putting up their hands and being like, I'm sorry, <laughs> what? Like, we were actually fairly impressed with the job Nina Nand was doing, but Bill Blair is going into it? Like, so yeah, a an inexplicable decision, uh, at least from these benches. Yeah, I think that's, that's what we got there. I am... Uh... I guess there's like a couple other little things, but yeah, like to me, those are those are the big ones. Yeah, let me. I, I can uh, pull one of those out, for example. One one of the small changes that some people were reading into more than others. Uh, Jonathan Wilkinson becoming Minister of Energy and Natural Resources, a renaming of his portfolio um, from just Natural Resources, which I understand is intended to better reflect uh, what he works on, what that department works on, better mirrors what the province has been doing. Natural resources being kind of a legacy name for a department that works on SMRs and renewables and electricity. Um, so a bit of a change of name there, but I don't understand that to have any kind of machinery of government implications. Yeah. Uh, are there... He nails it again, folks. <laughs> He's got him. <laughs> well, that actually kind of uh, brings me to kind of what the ostensible reason for part of this shuffle was, which is the government uh, kind of framed this in two ways. One is more focused on the economy, and the other part was doing a better job of communicating on the part of the government, which I'm not entirely convinced the Liberals' main problem was they weren't focused enough on comms throughout the uh, past couple of years. 
But um, with respect to that, do you think this actually uh, changes the how effective the government's going to be on that at all? Like, does this nail the actual uh, goals that they were ostensibly trying to achieve here? So, for my... What's interesting about comms, right, is everyone wants to give the government full points for comms. Um, like, the most superficial take in Ottawa, I would say, is, like, the government is good at communications. And this is premised on some idea of, like, how good they are at visuals, the prime minister standing in front of things. None of that is particularly difficult in terms of communications. And then there's another view, which is this government is really bad at comms. Around their key files, they aren't talking about major achievements. The messages aren't penetrating. They're not resonating with Canadians. They don't have, or they didn't have good communicators on files like housing, um, where like Pierre Polyev is clearly looking to make his name and make one of the central issues of the next election and is kind of uh, at crisis points with many groups across Canada. Um, and they weren't really doing anything about it like i would challenge anyone i mean i let's use this audience as a test sample can anyone here name any element of the national housing strategy um as a a fairly sophisticated audience i i'd be uh i'd be interested to know if either of you can tell me anything about the national housing strategy because i can't i can't tell you anything about the national housing strategy the accelerator fund has been reasonably well regarded. Yeah, there's uh, that, and there's the uh, housing savings account, whatever they're calling it, which is yeah, some like weird RSP TFSA hybrid that can only be spent on housing up to age yeah. forty or something. Yes, that that was in the last budget. That one is a little more of a gimme because it's like a, an individual uh, beneficiary. We're all beneficiary. Well, I'm too late, I guess. Um, but like, yeah, no one can really tell you much comprehensively about what they're promising. Now, let me flip that. Can either of you tell me what Pierre is po promising around housing? What his kind of hallmark policy, it's one of only a few policies he's actually put in the window. Um, but what his uh, kind of flagship proposal around housing is. It's the tying uh, federal money to uh, the transit yeah. density. Yeah. So I, I use that just to say... On key files, let's say environment, uh, housing, uh, inflation, and let's pick another one, uh, childcare. Like the government has not really been doing a good job of communicating their message on any of those kind of key bread and butter files. Um, despite the fact that the prime minister, you know, does a lot of press conferences, is out there trying to sell. Not a lot of the other ministers on those files are doing a bang-up job. Someone who is and is out there, I would say, doing a good job communicating is probably François-Philippe Champagne, um, one of the more effervescent uh, ministers. Um, we can never fail to get a pot in about, about the name. One of the more house. effervescent ministers who is actually going out there and selling and being visible and on the front lines and communicating. Uh, but even there, I think there's there's room to be more, let's say, detailed in terms of the communications and the explanations to buy more public confidence around the massive subsidies being made in Volkswagen and Stellantis. Yes. I, I think another person you can point to, and I think this is very tied into why he's taking the job he's now taking, is Sean Fraser, who I think has you know taken a tough department with a lot of issues uh, and made people feel pretty good about the direction of things. Like, obviously, the operations department are still, you know, in many ways a challenge, but like 
you know, going in front of the of a big tech audience in Toronto and talking about this new H-1B visa program and uh, that kind of stuff. Like, I think people take him seriously as someone who's making a splash on the file. Uh, and I think they would like someone who can do that on housing, as Etienne sort of pointed out. So we'll see. I mean, like, the thing is, is that sometimes the communications is not a challenge because it is hard to write in a Word document words that make sense, but just because the you know the governments are on a sort of path dependent trajectory that makes little sense in the current environment but that made a lot of sense when it was announced so those things happen and they're kind of hard to communicate around uh rather than you know fix the operational problems so we'll see how much it matters but yeah i certainly think they've done some good moves here in that direction yeah i think uh yeah sean fraser is definitely i think a good example on that personally i'm not entirely convinced that uh there's a huge comms issue, so to speak, so so much as a real delivering issue. Like operationally, a whole bunch of things haven't worked all that well in the past few years, and that's what's really kind of dragging them down. And getting better at actually governing may do more for them long term than uh, an even greater focus on comms. Which uh, I think if there's a mark against this governance, they're maybe a little too focused on issues management and maybe and not enough on the issues themselves yeah i I don't think we you know i think that's a a fairly widely held opinion about you know the government no matter what partisan stripe it is for any government that's been in there for a while and i think there's a lot to it uh in a lot of ways i i do think it's point about like even the stuff they are getting you know wins for their coalition on they're they're kind of invisible i think that that's a really good point like childcare, i think to me is a great example it's like damn like that really should be a generational thing that like when people talk about the Trudeau government in 20 years, like, well, at least they gave us childcare will be the thing that people say, right? Like, and we're not having much of a sense that that's moving. So, you know, maybe, maybe they're not talking to me uh, and I'm not seeing it, uh, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of discussion around that. And I would say like, you know, um, we mentioned Champagne, but like, I think they could be, it, perhaps they're a little hesitant about how much they're leaning into the climate stuff, given that I think there's a bit of an inverse relationship between cost of living and inflationary pressures and environment on the other side in terms of what becomes salient. Uh, so I think they're they're a little more focused on the, the cost of living stuff right now in the pocketbook. Uh, but even there, like I think uh, there's been a lot of movement on that file in the last year or two, obviously, and a lot of big money committed, uh, but not a lot uh, of fanfare uh, on how that's contributing, you know, in sort of granular ways to tackling the climate crisis, creating jobs, all that kind of good stuff. That's my read. Right. Well, uh, the other kind of big focus that apparently this cabinet shuffle was going to be all about was a refocus on the economy. And that one struck me as odd because outside of the changing up at Treasury Board, none of like the major economic files really changed hands. I mean, I guess housing is such a big problem these days with cost of living that you can potentially throw that one in there too. But uh, I don't know, does this actually lead to a government that's going to be more focused on the economy going forward? I mean, that's for them to decide um, <laughs> in, internally. <laughs> Boy, we'd have a short podcast if that was that. Uh... <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. You, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> you're absolutely right. Like one of the one of the visuals that was clearly coordinated in advance uh, during the shuffle was Champagne, Mary Ng, and uh, Minister Freeland all walking down together, kind of 
I don't know if they were literally hand in hand. I don't think they were. Um, but basically a message of, of continuity and good stewardship of the economic files. So taking that uh, visual and then saying like, we're doubling down. Uh, the folks who've been managing it are doing a, a good job and are staying put is there's a little bit of a tension there between a message of like, yeah, we're doubling down on economic things and we're, we're going to do better. Um, but I think there is a sense within government that those folks are hitting their stride. Um, particularly, uh, Champagne, I think is who they would point to. Uh, Mary Ng doesn't strike me as having as much visibility, um, in terms of like big wins lately and being on international trade. It's a little more challenging, but they gave her, as I recall, a slightly renamed portfolio here. Export promotion, yeah, which I think speaks to the idea that there's not a lot of big trade deals left to be negotiated, like the low-hanging fruit has been picked, so they want to focus on the, the other piece of that, which, you know, sensible. Yeah, export promotion actually got top billing in the rename ministry. But there have been a number of op-eds and uh, pieces in recent time talking about Canada having an innovation problem, Canada having a productivity problem, a lack of focus on long-term growth. Um, all of that economic, like bread and butter, kind of the core staples that typically a government pays a lot of attention to have not been a, a terrific focus of this government. They've kind of been like, if we deal with the micro issues, that'll take care of itself, um, which has not been the case. Um, we're, we're lagging on some of those indicators. And so a lot of stakeholders on that side of the equation have kind of been yelling themselves hoarse, trying to get the government to pay attention to things like research uh, policy, innovation policy, et cetera, um, with a sense that the government is really only focused on issues managing. And that if it's hard to make innovation policy um, on the front page of the Globe and Mail in order for the government to pay attention to it. Like you, you need to get some some innovators out protesting on the Hill um, or, or pulling some stunts or something in order for them uh, to pay attention has kind of been the feeling in, uh, in stakeholder groups in Ottawa. And so it remains to be seen whether or not the government can truly shift gears and actually bring itself to care about the economic issues. Freeland is someone who, uh, by CV seems to have all of the, you know, the bones in place in order for this to be something that she can genuinely care about, um, dig deep on is well informed on, um, it, it remains to be seen whether or not that it, that can be a focus of the other two. Yeah, and I, I guess at a, like zooming out a touch, and this might be a, a lot of zoom out, um, you know, I, I think you look across at the EU, you look across at the US kind of especially, um, and in Asia as well these days, like I think there's a bit of a sense that the, the kind of uh, Clintonian consensus of like the, the thing that matters is trade deals uh, in terms of economic management is, is a little pat behind us. And I think the marrying export promotion thing moving to the front of the line might be a bit of a of an indicator of that is that there is, you know, like there have been there has been thought given to the idea of like an industrial strategy or a sectoral industrial strategy for the last several years. There was the economic strategy tables in 2018, 2019 around then. Uh, of course, there was like the big was it 2017, Etienne? That was sort of the, the last big innovation budget where they did the super clusters and, and all those things. So they've they've sort of gone and it might have been 2017 or 2018 and listener, or listeners will have to bear with me about which one exactly it was. Um, 
there's more thought now to how those pieces can all be integrated together, looking at the IRA and the CHIPS Act in the U.S. and sort of a lot of the EU sectoral strategies over there. Um, and there's a need, perceived need to respond um, to a lot of it. And I think the climate funding in the last budget was, you know, responding to the IRA in kind of targeted ways. So I think it's it's bringing together the economic stuff, I think, kind of under one roof and saying, like, we have to kind of get our ducks in a row and consider this as a sort of, you know, multifaceted problem rather than 18 different problems. Uh, and perhaps, you know, that is part of where the government's thinking is evolving on this. Um, uh, I have done a lot of research this year about sort of the history of industrial strategies in Canada, and they've historically not worked uh, because they are uncoordinated, unfocused, and get hijacked by political priorities. Uh, and bureaucrats do not feel equipped to actually do the kind of detailed and, and sustained analytical work it takes to do these kinds of things well. So, you know, best case scenario, there is some thought as to how to address that. I actually think the Innovation Corporation that they announced uh, in the last six months here um, is to me a step in the right direction there and shows a bit of a focus on the right issues um, in, in terms of having it be fairly insulated, uh, bringing in the people who know what they're doing from the uh, Innovation Research Assistance Program, Industrial Research and Assistance Program, excuse me, IRAP. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff there that's happening kind of under the scenes or behind the scenes rather that is uh, that is promising on that front. Uh, but they, they're, I think like, having that be coordinated and sort of putting that first and saying like, we're focused on exports, we're focused on innovation, focused on productivity, like that would be very encouraging. And hopefully that's a bit of what is underway. Etienne or, or Scott, you guys want to jump in on that? Usually Etienne will tell me I'm wrong, but. Uh... No, I mean, uh, no, I, I have nothing to add to that. I think I, I, I've oh. admittedly, I've admittedly <laughs> paid less attention to it. <laughs> I, I guess the one thing I would add is one of the things you saw earlier on in this government, uh, particularly in, in and around the ISED and finance portfolios, was more kind of blue ribbon panels and blue ribbon groups. The industry strategy mm. tables that Laurent referenced, the Barton reports, uh, among others, are the ones that come to mind. There isn't a lot of that right now. Um, no. Minister Wilkinson well, is doing that on energy files with provinces. Um, but in the ISET and finance portfolios, I can't think of any kind of comparable initiative that's underway. And they promised a, um, a Council of Economic Advisors in the last uh, the last platform, I think, and they haven't really moved on it. So, but we do have a National Security Council now uh, <laughs> as one of the uh, as one of the new cabinet committees. Yeah, so we are becoming more and more Americanized, and soon, hopefully, we'll have both of those August White House institutions among us. Yeah, the, the reporting I've seen on that uh, new Security Council is that nobody quite knows what it's going to do or where it slots into anything. Well, it can join the very good company <laughs> of uh, Climate Committee A and Climate Committee B uh, around the table. So, Do folks know about that one? Is that a, Would your listeners be aware of, of this phenomenon? Okay, We've never talked about it on the podcast. Um, I will very quickly... Some other I, I can very quickly fill yeah. in if that's helpful at yeah, all. Run, run yeah, run through it because it's a bit so amusing. So folks uh, are aware, of course, that around the cabinet table, there are many cabinet committees, uh, you know, often with slightly overlapping memberships. And, and subject matter. However, there are two committees in the current composition. Uh, one is, uh, Tan, do you remember Economy, the full name? Inclusion and Climate Brackets A. 
<laughs> and B. So there's two committees with overlapping subject matter, as far as we can tell. I think there has been, and Etienne, correct me if I'm wrong on this, because I think you're the one who heard this and not me. There is some nod to one of those being more operational in nature and one of them being more policy-focused in nature, but it obviously is hard to tell from the outside which one of those is which. So Yeah, I the rationale I heard at the start was... I mean, there's a lot on that topic. There's more than enough to work to go around. And then from the same person, some months later, I heard, it's a big gong show. No one knows what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) I think they should have done it like a SEAL Team 6 kind of thing where there's like Climate Committee B and Climate Committee Y. And then it's like, what were the other ones? Like, you don't know. It's It's a mystery. You don't know how many climate committees we have. Could be any number. Yeah, well, I guess... Yeah, final question is, um, are you guys have both worked uh, in political staffing on the Hill. Kind of just, like, what's the experience like when these big cabinet shuffles happen? Any, uh, I don't know, anything particularly interesting or something that our listeners might uh, be curious about? Did you go through No, I, so I never went through a shuffle. Um, I only went through the demise of a government. Um, the classic example that we've used from a friend and guest on our show is being in line on vacation at Disneyland um, and finding out that he was being shuffled. And then by the time he got to the ride, finding out that he had a new job and and, and where he was going to land. So, I mean, it's a hectic time. There's uh, basically all staffers in the affected portfolios get a letter that say you have, it changes, but generally it's 30 days, I believe, 30 days to find a new job. Uh, If you don't, here's your compensation package of X weeks of pay per years of service, um, plus or minus. Um, And you better hope you got friends. There's kind of two types of staffers. There's staffer, in my mind, there's staffers who follow their ministers um, and there's staffers who are wedded to the portfolios. Um, you know, some people fall in between those and look to do neither, uh, jump both portfolios and ministers, depending on, on what they're in, likely probably more people in comms and parlor affairs than, than in policy circles. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but even in policy circles, it's not entirely unheard of. Um, but you know, it's a a lot of emails. It's a lot of uncertainty, whether or not you're going to continue in your role, whether or not the minister is going to be keeping staff. And there's going to be a slot for you in the job that you want to do, whether or not you can use it as an opportunity to move up the ladder within a minister's office. Um, there's a certain amount of chaos um, that can be taken advantage of or that can serve as your ticket out of government. I would expect to see, I mean, there has been an attrition of staffers as happens later in a government. I would expect to see some folks using this as their opportunity to get a payout and to simultaneously look for a new job while the government is in power, which is when your uh, stock price is the highest as a political staffer. Um, waiting into the next election when the conservatives are at what, 38, 39 in the polls. Um, for Yeah, we just uh, got a new poll this week. They are 38. Is that the, the average poll? So 10 point gap. Yeah, there was another one, I think, yes. Leger, um, don't quote me on that, that backed those numbers. So no longer an outlier or a one-off. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of good signs. And I've heard from some staffers that like they're on a six-month plan looking to get out, um, that kind of thing. So, I mean, if you can get paid yeah. for the next four months while you look for a job and enjoy the summer, I, I, I won't, I won't so, okay. you to take I, it. I wanna- 
I want to pick up on one point that I can talk about it from the opposition point of view. Uh, I saw like an unusual amount of like very like hand over heart kind of posts being like, you know, think today of all the staffers. And it's like the one thing to me that is genuinely offensive to do as a political staffer is to feel sorry for yourself and your colleagues. Like it's a highly desirable job. It's very cool and interesting in ministers' offices, you're actually reasonably well remunerated uh, compared to legislative staff, and it's like, man, like, and as Atien just said, like, when you when you get shuffled out of a job, you have you continue to be paid for months. Like, people would kill for that deal. Uh, so, to me, just what is indecent uh, is to is to make a big show of it. Uh, like, it's fine. You're you're gonna be okay. Uh, so just don't <laughs> complain. Is is kind of perhaps my my takeaway from this, like. <laughs> Anyway, uh, as the chance said, like you got four months to figure it out. You're getting paid in the meantime. The job market is, is pretty good for for people in this line of work right now. Like it's it's fine. Like don't don't give me this. Anyway, uh, yes, they're hard jobs, and like yes, it, you know it can be very emotional. And it's, it's like I lost my job after the 2018 election. I, it was not fun, you know. Uh, but yeah, it was like it's fine. It works out. Uh, so anyway, don't feel sorry for yourself. Uh, the other, so yeah, on the opposition side for us, it was always interesting because a, we can kind of do this kind of tea leaf reading of like, okay, well, what does that tell us about where they think they're vulnerable? Where do we need to keep pressing? Where do we need to press harder? Where can we kind of ease off? Uh, so that conversation that we kind of had at the front end of this is, is similar to how we would have done that, uh, in the, in sort of the issues shop, uh, when I was there. Um, and it, it also gives us, obviously, like we look at what we have on, on ministers and like, okay, like where have they had issues before? What's their communication style like, you know, who's likely to, to raise their hackles in the house, um, that kind of thing. So that was always interesting. Um, yeah, I, I would say that was kind of the outlines of it. It basically just lets us like kind of retool and, and gives us a sense of where their priorities are and where they think their weaknesses are. Um, and you know, how we can kind of work that into how we're sort of proceeding along kind of like where we want to be for the next election. Uh, that's fairly high level, but like, honestly, that's kind of how it is. Uh, there's not much capacity to go like crazy, crazy deep on these things. And you're kind of, you know, trying to do this at the speed of parliament, which when I say it out loud, uh, sounds like a bad joke. Uh, <laughs> but it, it does move fast, you know, like the, the, the political world in that way. So yeah, it wasn't crazy sophisticated, but you know, it was certainly like a good opportunity to, uh, to recalibrate what, whatever we were kind of trying to do in a macro sense. And to make that more explicit, one of the things I guess now to watch for is whether or not the opposition shuffled their respective critic slash shadow minister portfolios yeah. um, in order to align the critics and the shadow ministers with the new uh, counterparts on the government bench. So maybe... Yeah, like who's going to drive you know, whomever <laughs> crazy? Okay, put them up like that. But that's really like to some extent, like who is going to get under this person's skin is is a very, very useful skill to have. Like it's a, it's a good question to ask. Yeah, there's like two thoughts on that. There's the do we mirror them or do we basically build our set of priorities in there? And yeah, different parties have taken different approaches, I think. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. The NDP tend to do a little more on the mirroring side and the conservatives a little more on the uh, this is our set of priorities, but it can vary. So even the conservatives tend to do quite a bit of mirroring. Um, Often, I mean, my take is that often it's in the kind of uh, deputy critic slots where they put in their priorities. I'll give you an example. Corey Tucker is uh, shadow minister 
associate shadow minister for natural resources today, um, brackets, SMRs, small modular reactors. Um, so like that's an example where a conservative priority around the natural resources file is small modular reactors. So they've shoehorned that in. But the main critic, Shannon Stubbs, on, on the natural resources file is just natural resources, a direct mirror to Wilkinson's. Um, of course, that's now up in the air because of the shuffle, but that, will, that goes yeah. without saying. Yeah. Another good example of one of those was Ben Lobb as kind of the crypto critic <laughs> uh, when that was uh, when Bitcoin prices were higher. Uh, but no, but really like that. It, but I agree with Etienne. Like it's often at that level or like they'll sort of tack something on uh, to someone's credit portfolio that is like not real. Like so I worked for for Charlie, obviously. And uh, at one point he was you know critic for indigenous youth. And that was not like a portfolio uh, that the government had. But it was something that was kind of like near and dear to Charlie's heart. Uh, so we worked on it kind of like intersecting across uh, Indigenous affairs and um, uh, Indigenous Although services. you'd expect to see an NDP like shadow critic for breadlines or something else that they wanted. That's under agriculture. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, should we uh, pivot to talking about national security and Johnson Report? Unless you guys have anything else on... Uh, Cabinet shuffles to. Uh, I I only hope mention. that we have been of, of value and uh, and have edified your listeners in some some areas. I, I expect they'll be pretty happy with Perfect. the discussion so far. Okay, well, yeah. Um, well, then moving on. The, so the other uh, thing I want to discuss while I have you guys, uh, particularly uh, with your team, because you had uh, in your previous role worked within the. Uh, Ministry of Public Safety as a political staffer there. Uh, so I kind of want to get your thoughts on the Johnson report, what happened there, and kind of what it revealed around uh, the inner, inner workings of the government. Uh, so we, on the podcast, talked about this pretty much every week as the story developed. So, you know, super high level, Johnson got appointed, came in, reviewed some of the... Uh, internal workings of the government as part of it, his investigation into whether or not uh, there was foreign interference and whether the government responded appropriately to that. And a couple things that were revealed is that the communications within the various government departments, both at the uh, public service level and at the political level, weren't working very smoothly with information often getting sent and not tracked, uh, not having stuff confirmed that it was read, or in one particular case with the uh, Minister of Public Safety at the time, Bill Blair, uh, neither him nor his chief of staff having access to the top secret email network that the intelligence related to the attempt to influence Michael Chong uh, and his intimidated family was being sent up to the political level on that. Um, so that's kind of like the broad overview. Um, again, kind of like what's your takeaway on kind of the overall report and, uh, I guess the issue more broadly and Laura, feel free to jump yeah. in as well after this, your, uh, so opinions on it. a few things jump out at me. So let, let me start with two caveats. The first is my role was not um, national security explicitly. I was in parliamentary affairs and communications. Um, so I was on the periphery of some of the, these things, not directly involved um, in terms of like the processes that we'll be discussing. Um, 
and two that was in 2015 um so allow some margin for modernization between now and then um but there was a few kind of let's call them confounding things about um, this section four in in the Johnson report, which is intelligence and how it moves through government, which is the way he described intelligence moving through government was less sophisticated, less tracked than the average correspondence document, i.e. letter from an average Canadian would have been. So let me talk you through that process and then we can talk about kind of Johnson's observations. Like a standard letter, if you, if you, Scott, write a letter to your minister of, let's use public safety, right? The letter comes in, it's put in a, or it used to be put in a docket. The dockets were color coded uh, depending on the priority of the message. And then on the front of the docket was a tracking sheet that is basically how that um, letter travels through government. So you can request through access to information, in fact, the docket, the covering docu- docket, and see the, tra- the, the transmission record for a letter from an average citizen. And basically what it says is it'll have like initials of the person, the department, um, the dates that things are transmitted through. That's how paperwork wor- used to work itself through like the average government department. To what extent these dockets are still used, especially post-COVID, I have no idea. But that gives you a sense of how the average letter used to travel through uh, the federal civil service. And not only that, there was a uh, you know a copy recorded digitally. All of this was available in a, a tracking system called Artem's, depending on what department you use for. There's a few different ones. But needless to say, it was actually a relatively sophisticated operation for run-of-the-mill paperwork. And so when Johnson comes in and in this report, he says like, yeah, we have no sense of if anyone got the documents, like the top secret binders are, are labeled only to departments uh, and not to specific recipients. I find I take a lot of that with a grain of salt and really have questions about the specifics and his understanding. He quotes a PMO staffer talking about like being put in a room and given a binder and told to read um, with no prioritization. I, I'm, I'm willing to accept that they're given like large binders and lack of uh, prioritization. Generally, the way it happened uh, was there would be someone who brought over top secret information and, you, and then would come pick it up you know, later that day, the next day, whatever the scheduled uh, timeline was, and you had to read it in top secret cleared areas. Um, so like the possession and tracking of that information was intended to be quite um, tight. And so some of the looseness that he talks to, I really struggle with, especially in terms of like not knowing who received it. I get it. Not everyone reads everything. Not everyone's going to read everything. There's going to be competing priorities on a given day, whether or not the chief of staff to the minister of public safety is actually going to have the opportunity to crack into that binder. They can certainly ask for more time with that binder and make accommodation um, with CSIS or whoever is bringing that binder in order to get through it. But also it's really, I think, tough to be in that position as political staff and not finding time to read the top secret, like uh, briefing binder, like what else do you have on your plate that is more important in a given day? And it's hard to imagine that like 
you know, micromanaging the minister's uh, uh, press release or the minister's like Q&A or, or whatever it is should take priority over um, receiving a, a top secret briefing about threats to the country ostensibly in whatever shape or form that they take or other intelligence. And so there's a question of prioritization. So when folks say like, oh, we didn't read the binders or we didn't read the emails, you have to start asking a lot of questions. There seem to be a lot of holes. And this goes back to one of my broader problems with the Johnson report and some of the other apparatus we've set up in government, uh, you know, in recent years is it is remarkably hard to get a straight answer from the intelligence services on, I think, virtually anything. Um, they're used to operating where people give them the benefit of the doubt. And so it is important, in my view, uh, particularly as political staff, to treat them as any as you would any other government department, uh, with the exception of, you know, carve outs for not getting involved in political interference, blah, 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 like the, the usual things that you can't do when you're particularly in a law enforcement or national security portfolio. But I mean, just insofar as interrogating uh, the substance of what they're telling you, and whether or not it's well founded, or if they're leaning on their veil of secrecy, to kind of give you a superficial accounting of events. Um, and, and that is, you know, very often the case with uh, national security agencies in the government of Canada and elsewhere is they, they like their, their secrecy and they will lean on their secrecy because they're always afforded the benefit of the doubt under the presumption that they know everything. And that is very much not the case. And they should be interrogated the same as you would interrogate any other uh, official of the government of Canada. They are fundamentally, they are no different than uh, bureaucrats in any other department in many, many, many respects, and they should be treated as such. Um, and so all of that put into account, like one of the things that came up in my mind when reading the Johnson Report uh, intelligence and how it moves through government and about the challenges with top secret information handling and how hard it was to read and all the rest of that was one of the much heralded uh, accountability um, mechanisms we have newly baked into our system, which is NSICOP, National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, which is a bunch of MPs provided no staff um, who are cleared to the top secret level and a secretariat of officials from drawn from those national security agencies generally um, who are intended to provide one of the key oversight mechanisms um, to our national security uh, agencies in this country. And I think it doesn't make a ton of sense to expect MPs from all over the country to be able to review top secret information on kind of an ongoing basis and to, to carve that into their calendar when they're doing a million other things. I, I think what happens is they likely lean on the secretariat folks more um, than they should. And so I, I think a lot of the questions that come out here can be cross applied to uh, NSI cop. Laura is uh, smiling and laughing because this is not a not a new concern yes. of mine, but it is a concern that was reawoken mm. by reading this section. Well, yeah, and this is specific reason I'm laughing at this. Etienne, uh, it, it, can, can I tell this story? I don't, I don't know what the story it? is. Well, it's just about about you raising precisely this issue about uh, MPs on an cop not having access to sort of political support. Yeah, go, yeah, go ahead. You know what I'm talking about now. Yeah, okay. There, there's there's uh, no secrets. Okay. So, 
<laughs> so yes, this made me laugh because as Zatanna's talking about the sort of like culture of deference to the you know the the bureaucrats in the national security space. They are enabled, I would say, to a significant degree by a national security uh, academic apparatus uh, that, except for one very uh, important exception, has been very traditionally aligned with uh, the bureaucracy. Um, and I, I guess, I, you know, we can name names, sure. So when uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Etienne was, you know, enjoying, uh, I think we were on our way to, to a brewery or something, and... Uh, Etienne was, uh, you know, the, the Twitter finger was itchy, and he was tweeting from the, the old uh, at short pants pod account, great account, uh, and was tweeting about specifically this issue about, hey, like, you know, it's kind of odd that, you know, we have, you know, political staff who can act as support, you know, with, you know, who are smart, politically sensitive people who can add, you know, sort of processing capacity to, to MPs. Uh, and it would make sense to have them, you know, swear them in like you would anybody else, but like, you know, it seems seems like a bit of a no-brainer. Uh, for expressing this view uh, to to Stephanie Carvin, who of course is a, a professor at uh, is she at Carleton? Yes, yeah, at Carleton. Yeah. Carleton, I think. Uh, and in, in the national security space, uh, Tian was was you know with extreme prejudice <laughs> blocked. Uh, so to this day, um, yeah, all that to say that yes, like there, I am I have really no background in the national security space apart from the healthy skepticism of it. Um, and to me, that was kind of instructive and in, in wagon circling uh, in this realm. Yeah, just to to close on that point, you have a minister's office with 15 staff of which call one to three are probably top secret cleared who are not able to read. Those four people are not able to keep up ostensibly based on this in this particular government, at least are not able to prioritize it. Now imagine what the average MP or senator who is not in Ottawa full time um, and who is in fact not in Ottawa very often uh, some parts of the year is supposed to be sitting down and reading through like primary sources, uh, documents coming out of the national security apparatus, like hundreds and thousands of pages, not distilled briefs. I mean, you would hope that these folks are seeing um, like primary sources rather than taking the secretariat's word for it. Because as I alluded to, I mean, when they first set up NSI cop, there were good people who went over there, but they were people from public safety, RCMP, CSIS who make up the secretariat. So it's like, who, who is, who is watching the watchman here as their former colleagues. Um, and so the circles are very small. Everyone knows each other. Um, there's challenges in other respects. Nationals. There's also one. Yeah, a national security is just one very practical uh, problem with NSI COP and, and this idea of, you know, people kind of coming from all over the country to review these documents is that NSI COP sits really early in the morning to accommodate people's parliamentary schedules. Uh, so not only is this MPs who are not necessarily really familiar with the subject matter, who have no support with them, who are, you know, coming in off flights the day before. They're also just undercaffeinated at this point in the morning and have, you know, are probably groggy. So anyway, just a minor thing. Right. And yeah, and uh, also like national security isn't a huge area of interest for a lot of uh, Canadians or particularly something that a lot of people see as like a major career path if you're really interested in that stuff. So I imagine the pool of people outside of the establishment itself to draw in as potential political staffers is probably fairly small on that as well just within in terms of political staff yeah. to support mps 
Yeah, or like people who would like come in who don't have like their entire past career being in these. So for for members of parliament, I don't think that's necessary, right? In fact, that's beneficial to not have people who are um, indoctrinated, <laughs> quite literally. Um, that that when you get a top secret clearance, it's called an indoctrination, depending on what type of uh, top secret clearance you're getting. Um, who are external observers. The role all throughout government, it's you know, same minister's office. Political staff there aren't to out-department the department. They're not there to be subject matter experts. They're there to provide that political lens, kind of an outsider perspective, to play the challenge function. It would be the exact same in, in these kinds of scenarios. That's always the role of political staff. It's never to be the, the subject matter expert themselves, although subject matter expertise has developed over time and certainly helps in those positions. Um, but like MPs are supported, MPs and ministers in Canada, at least, are supported basically every step of their career um, by political staff. And now this is the one carve out. Um, and it comes, I think, with a cost. And on, on the counter side, what's the proposal? The proposal is clearing a few more Canadians with top secret level clearance and giving them a little more access. Um, you know, in the United States, there are hundreds of thousands of people with this level of clearance. In Canada, there are not that many. And most of the leaks, if you're reading the news these days, seem to be coming from RCMP officers <laughs> themselves on sensitive files selling secrets. So, uh, I mean, I think uh, I think it's a little pearl clutching from some of the national security agencies in terms of uh, being opposed to sharing their information. And, and they're, of course, always going to be in this position, but ultimately, fundamentally, it's a political choice. Yeah, and uh, to use the United States in person again, I mean, they have a whole apparatus in Congress yeah. and the Senate for uh, security oversight, and those, I believe, are pretty Immense, well-staffed. Immensely well-staffed. With a whole... Yeah, which you're neat. It's just, like, the sheer volume of intelligence information is overwhelming. And, like, there's a giant funnel that leads up to the uh, political level. But if you actually want to do real oversight on that, you need people who can insert themselves and carry themselves to that funnel and actually get yeah, it. And be picture. sophisticated and be well equipped to interrogate the officials coming before you on the granular details and to follow up. And MPs, as it turns out, themselves are not super well equipped to interrogate on the details. Anyone who's prepared an MP for committee I think can tell you about the challenges uh, of having an MP pursue granular details out of officials, uh, not to mention I, doing the follow-up yeah. on the other end, of course, supported by committee. But I will say that it is possibly one of the bleakest realizations you can come to in, in this realm to think, wow, if only we could get to American levels of security intelligence oversight, that would be <laughs> incredible. That would be amazing. Like, wow, that's uh, whew, okay. That's, that's tough to hear. And that's a reach goal too. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's rough. Can I can I swerve us slightly? Um, Absolutely, yeah, go not. for it. So, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> Next topic. So one of one of the pieces that he touched in uh, touches on in the report as I was skimming it um, is the question of the leaker themselves, um, and there's. I think a lot of the conversation around this has been interesting. Um, the leaker, as far as I know, has kind of gone silent. We haven't seen much coming out of Fife and Chase, unless I've missed a story over the summer. 
No, I believe pretty much since the report dropped, there's basically been no new major revelations. Yeah, so it's been... So whomever it was um, has gone silent. I think there are some interesting elements that, you know, folks were trying to Sherlock Holmes it based on what was being leaked about what position in government. Um, I have no doubt that it caused a great deal of heartburn within the apparatus uh, of government and the national security agencies. One book I read recently that was super fascinating on this front is called Spy World. I think it's by Robert Frost. Um, and someone else as a co-author. Um, and it's about a leaker from CSE, the early days of the communication security establishment. And he basically talks through the founding of that agency and then writes a book about setting up uh, signals intelligence, eavesdropping posts at embassies, within embassies all over the world. Um, and he was never prosecuted for the book because guess what? Putting someone like that on the stand... Uh, to publicly interrogate opens a wound that if it's effectively closed or can be deemed closed, maybe is not what you want. Um, so the idea that this person would be, you know, immediately tracked down and prosecuted, I have no doubt tracked down and fired, um, but tracked down and prosecuted, I think was given a little too much um, credence. One of the other things I think that was given too much credence was about how much of an international embarrassment this was for Canada. Um, guess what? The United States deals with leaks all the time, often on a order of uh, magnitude much greater than what we're talking about. I mean, this stuff at least went through like a reporter and stuff. It wasn't just like put out on a Discord or anything. Yeah, well, the Discord example being the latest, right? Or uh, Snowden or what have you. It wasn't a large trove of raw intelligence. It was somewhat select. I mean, it was raw intelligence selectively interpreted and, and uh, leaked. But I like peanuts compared to what goes on in other jurisdictions. So I, I think there was a lot of pearl clutching in that particular instance, in that particular dynamic yeah. as well. Very much so. Like, I mean, just to take like the Pentagon Papers or the, you know, the Af- the Afghanistan equivalent that everyone forgot about immediately, uh, you know, basically say alluding to the existence of a memo that someone forgot to read is not the same as like, yeah, uh, the government just said we were going to win the war for 20 years, but knew they were going to lose. It's like, come on, guys, like we're not same ballpark here. And no one even cared about that. So, you know, clearly you can kind of say whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. So, you know, go ahead and leak, guys. That's, that's really <laughs> I'm not sure this that, is not advice. that would have been my best. This is not legal advice. Yeah, do not take legal advice do not from take this podcast. Legal, or from me. Do not leak. <laughs> you know, legally. It's illegal to do it. Don't do it. Um, so, yeah, I guess kind of like one final question, in our, at least... A question I have is if the um, something like as serious as like an MP under threat, like what would have normally in your experience kind of like been the sort of reaction or like how would that have gone through at the political level and been handled? Um, specifically like the Michael Chong stuff in this case. And like I don't think there was an equivalent sort of thing, but like just based on your understanding of how the apparatus worked, like what would you have expected a well-functioning or normally functioning office to have done in those cases. So one of the issues that, so we never had, I mean, in the time that I was in that office, kind of a comparable situation around with the, like the foreign interference, foreign country involvement angle, which I think is fairly unique. 
um, that that at, at least comes to mind to me right now. Um, but what there was and continues to be is security for MPs was somewhat of a live question at that time. Um, I can remember Trudeau's office post break-in at his residence um, requesting, then as the th leader of the third party, requesting security, um, the RCMP doing an assessment and deeming it not required. Um, and that being a little bit of a political, a minor political hot potato at the time, the RCMP have largely, and Ka I think Catherine McKenna would back this up, been loath to offer security for ministers uh, as well as MPs. And so the uh, from their perspective, it wasn't merited. They'll sometimes do like security reviews where they change the locks and they'll like remove the minister's name from the like apartment registry at the front, like things like that. They'll do like common sense procedures um, to upgrade the security a little bit. Um, but at the time, Trudeau's team requested it. There'd been a break in. The knives had been left on the counter. Um, RCMP deemed it not necessary. I mean, they were somewhat vindicated in this instance because it turned out it was a drunk person who thought they were going in the back door of their friend's house. And left the knives um, out? And then, well, they, so what the story was, as I recall, it was he jumped into the backyard because he was supposed to be coming in his friend's back door and he was fairly intoxicated. He started to sleep on the couch and then realized that this wasn't his friend's house. Then he wanted to steal the knives because I guess he was a knife guy. Um, realized, had a had a moral pang, wrote a note that said, like, you should be more careful and lock your doors. Left all the knives pooled on the counter and decided not to steal them and left. Um and then it just so happened this was Justin Trudeau's house, which uh, when ooh. when you read the note without that context sounds way different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it sure does, doesn't it? It's like you, you sort of you can be walked through the reasoning on that, and then ask the guy like, "Yeah, but you see that the giant pile of knives with the vaguely threatening note is, is just, <laughs> yes. oh, oh, yeah. I see where you're, yeah, no, yeah, that is terrifying. I see that. it now, yeah, for sure." Yeah. <laughs> And, and so that was an instance where the RCMP decided that additional security was not required um, for Trudeau as leader of the third party. And like, admittedly, like there were things like the doors were unlocked and blah, blah, blah. But since then, and I can use an example of just the other week, like the ministers, uh, in fact, what would have been ministers of state, fairly junior ministers in terms of position, uh, at Stampede had security, had RCMP details with them, which would have been absolutely unheard of um, 10 years ago. And there there were some stories uh, in the last year or two about RCMP offs or about RCMP getting money to do more close protective uh, details for ministers after like literally years of Ka uh, Catherine McKenna complaining about exactly this issue and being threatened. There was the instance of like Christia Freeland in Alberta being like chased into an elevator. Like there's been a number of these situations and like the government has been slow to react in defense of their own ministers on this file. Um, I, I think they're getting there now to where folks are a little more comfortable. I mean, it's kind of sad that we need to take these, these steps to begin with. Um, but it's certainly an element of political security that has evolved over the years. I can remember when, so when I was uh, staffing the Minister of Public Safety, 
um, during the 2015 election. Uh, Blaney was at this community fund race. Um, and I had the pleasure of pulling the short straw and having to run five kilometers with the minister not being in running shape. Um, but he ran into his local uh, MNA, uh, member of National Assembly in Quebec, who was the minister of tourism, who had uh, SQ security guard or SQ police officer with her. And it was just me. I, it was just me on the other side. Uh, and everyone presumed and often presumed that I was like his protective detail. That was very Which is much very, very, very funny to imagine. Very much not the case. You know how they're supposed to be like unobtrusive and like kind of blend into the background? Like not not happening. Not happening. So all of that is just to give a picture as to how as to how security around MPs has evolved. And a lot of it has been very recently. But all of that is kind of the run-of-the-mill let's call it run-of-the-mill domestic considerations, um, which is certainly different than kind of political intimidation of an MP by a foreign nation, foreign adversary, however you want to characterize it. Um, where if you, I would like to think that if we found out that a member of our party or a member of our party, a member of the opposition, whoever it was at the time, was being like actively pursued, intimidated, what have you, by a foreign adversary that, that would that would prompt further steps as well as a discussion with that with that individual about what more could be done rather than sitting on right, it like and, a five alarm fire there was kind of a alarm bells are going yeah, off everyone's rushing at, le- at to least how to deal with it type thing yeah at least four and like laurent was it jenny kwan who also got the briefing on the ndp side and has she do you know if she said anything publicly about what the what the circumstances of that was, or I do not recall. So if she has, I'm unaware of it. Sadly. Um, so yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen. Of course, we don't have uh, the actual intelligence. As, as far as I know, I I would suspect that they weren't shown the the raw intelligence either, well, but merely yeah. given a, a summary briefing. Well, this was the particular one where the uh, the not having the login to the top secret email was the alleged uh, reason nothing happened on that. Yeah, the news for me here is top secret email. What, <laughs> what is a top secret email? This is probably part of the modernization that may have happened after you, but uh, yeah, there were no, there were no top secret emails as far as I can recall. Um, there was like a top secret fax machine, uh, but no, which functioned horrifically. Um, but no emails as far as I can remember. Right. Well, um, yeah, I guess things have changed a little bit. Uh, before we wrap up, I guess any final takeaways or thoughts on uh, this topic or anything else we've uh, chatted about tonight or this afternoon? Um, yeah. I mean, just to say the foreign interference file clearly isn't going away. Um, it's one that I think, you know, we need more public attention and public scrutiny on, more questions asked. Um, That being said, it is not one that I suspect moves the needle with a lot of voters, um, especially... Correct. So, I mean, my big concern is that, not that, like, people are going to be up threat threat about this or, like, they'll be haranguing their MPs to try and get something happening on it. But confidence in democracy? It's the time bomb of what happens if something happens in the next election and like this gets to be the thing everyone points to as 
the reason to not trust the outcome. Yeah, the the election is rigged. I mean, to a certain extent, the conservatives, and I'll, I'll give kudos to Aaron O'Toole in particular, has been forceful about the point that in his view, this did not change the outcome of the election. Um, it may have impacted a few seats, but the nature of our system is that there's 338, soon to be 342, 42, 43, um, whatever the, the redistribution is, um, seats and races. And all of this was effectively targeting people they didn't like at the local level. Um, so more about individual candidates um, who, for, for better or for worse, than about broad scale impact on the Canadian election. Um, so that is, I guess, cold comfort, but to say that the intention wasn't to shift the election. The intention was, as, as far as we know, uh, the intention was to target a few people that they didn't like, you know, across party lines, sometimes skewing more towards some parties than others, but that's, that's how it goes when you take a more hawkish, hawkish position yeah. on an adversary. I, I have really nothing to add on the security front. Just, it is really just not my, my area of expertise, um, yeah, I, I just think uh, definitely you get the sense that uh, returning a bit to the cabinet shuffle that I, I think they, for perhaps the first time uh, in the lifetime of, of this government, feel perhaps genuinely threatened, I think, in a way that they have not under either of the, the previous conservative leaders they've had to deal with. Um, so I, I think we're in a bit of a new period for them and I think it'll be interesting to see kind of how they react, uh, and sort of what they change. Cause I, I you know, what Tanner was talking about with like some of the odd, you know, paper flow is perhaps, you know, if, if the procedures have changed to the point that, you know, these things are falling through the cracks, I think it's an indicative of a government that perhaps, uh, that a little bit of worry might be salutary. Uh, in terms of tightening the ship on a certain key aspects of how they're running things. That's it for me. Yeah. 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 I completely agree on that. Uh, well, thank you uh, both of you for joining me today and uh, help filling in while we, Ian's off uh, on vacation. Uh, before you go, uh, if our listeners are interested in, uh, hearing your podcast when it comes off from hiatus, or I don't know if you guys are still on Twitter or X or whatever it's called this week. Um, where can they find you? Uh, we are at short pants pod on twitter.com or whatever it's called now. Uh, and we'll probably continue to be there for the foreseeable future. Um, Etienne, anything on your end that you, you want to plug or no, I mean, the uh, spy world's a good book. If you want to, if you want to pick it up and, and read more about the, the founding of CSE, I'll, I'll plug that. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly it from us. Okay. Well, thanks for joining me. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Scott. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>